Well, as we continue in worship, we now want to uh, turn our focus to God's Word. We're going to read four different passages together. Um, Our text for this morning is Isaiah chapters 24 to 27. Again, we'll only read a selection of it to, uh, to begin our service, but the main focus of Isaiah 24 to 27 is the, the final judgment of God, when God will, in the end, separate the wicked from the righteous, will bring judgment upon those who are wicked, and will welcome those who have trusted in him into his everlasting home, into his presence forever. And so you'll see some of that as we read Isaiah 24, verses uh, 21 to chapter 25, verse 9. Ryan will come and read that for us. We'll then read Revelation 20, verse 11 to 21, verse 4. And I think you'll see much of the language, again, that's here in Isaiah, just echoed once again in this section of Revelation as God talks about what is coming in the days ahead. Lisa will read for us from Revelation. After that, we have uh, two words of comfort. In John 10, we read that we are secure in Christ, and so take comfort that regardless of what judgment comes, Christ is able to hold us fast. And then we'll also see the love that God has for us in Proverbs 18, verse 10. So let me pray now for the reading of God's word and also for the preaching of God's word, and then I'll invite the readers to come forward. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. You have not remained silent, Lord, but you have spoken to us so that we can know what your will is for us and even what your plan is for the future of this earth. God, I pray that the realities that we are about to read of in your word uh, would not remain uh, remote and distant ideas or facts to us, uh, but Lord, that we would Uh, recognize the reality of these things and that therefore we would stand in fear and that we would also stand in reverence and love and wonder at the great works that you are performing. So God, strike our hearts now, I pray, by your word. Uh, Lord, whoever is here this morning and has a stony heart, unreceptive to your word, uh, Lord, would you soften it now by the hammer of your word uh, that we might believe the words that are read And that as I preach your word, that it might indeed result in transformation of our lives. Strengthen me as well, Lord, to proclaim your word faithfully and accurately and with power. God, I don't want to preach in my own strength or according to my own wisdom. I want to preach according to what you yourself have revealed in your word and only the truth that is spoken there, Lord, so that your people can indeed be built up and strengthened. And so, Lord, we ask all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Isaiah chapter 24, starting in verse 21. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. Chapter 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. 
For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through chapter 21, verse 4. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. John ten, twenty-seven through 29 My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Well, as we come to the end of this section of Isaiah, we've seen Isaiah go through three rotations of judgment and blessing. The first rotation of judgment and blessing was for the people of Jerusalem and Judah and the nations surrounding it in Isaiah's time, in that generation. And then the next cycle that we looked at just last week was an ongoing cycle that would continue throughout the history of the world, whereby God 
would always continually bring down those who were arrogantly disobedient to him and that he would exalt the lowly. And then finally, in this third cycle of judgment and blessing that Isaiah proclaims, he is looking now to the very end of history when that cycle of curse and blessing, of judgment and reward will finally end and there will be a final separation of those who are opposed to God from those who love him and cherish him. Now, as we think about these cycles of judgment, whether there's something that happened in history before we were born, whether it's something that is ongoing today in our day-to-day lives, or whether it's something that is yet to come in the future, the exhortation for us, beloved, remains the same. And that is that we must believe that God is active in history. That he is active even before we were born. That he is active today on the earth and that he will be active in the age to come. Beloved, the greatest temptation I believe that exists for us today, especially in the modern West, is to simply have a mindset that the world operates, the world moves forward, our lives can go forward day to day with no reference to the activity of God, with no need for God to intervene in our world, that everything around us today can be explained by recourse to science and psychology and natural occurrences. And yet what this text in Isaiah tells us, what this whole section of Isaiah tells us, is that the world is not simply operating according to mechanistic rules that can be described in mathematical formula and in textbooks. Rather, God is active, beloved. He has plans for the world that he has accomplished in history, that he is bringing about right now, and that are yet to be accomplished in the future. And so, beloved, if we are to live as faithful people today, we must live with this mindset that God is alive, that he is active in the world, that his involvement has not come to an end, that he is not very distant from us today, but that we can trust in him today. And we can expect that whatever he has promised for the future is as surely coming to pass as the chairs that you are sitting on right now hold you up, that God is alive. This, beloved, is the essence of the attitude of faith. That we believe that God is real and that his word is true and that he will do and he has done all that he said, all that he spoke of. And yet we know how very tempting it can be to reject this reality and to say, no, the world makes more sense to me if God is not there. If I do not rely upon God day to day. Indeed, Scripture itself, I think, describes this reality to us. We saw it even in last week's text in Isaiah 21, verses 11 and 12. I think probably the clearest place so that Scripture speaks to this mentality, this mindset that the world can be explained without reference to God is in the book of Ecclesiastes which I think wrestles with this idea of how the world just seems to go on and on and God doesn't seem to intervene, and yet Ecclesiastes itself does give us hope that God does intervene. But just listen to these verses from the first chapter of Ecclesiastes. The preacher there says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 
A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams return to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Beloved, this is the mindset of so many people today, and it is our own mindset far too often. What has been is what will always be. The world just seems to go on and on. It doesn't make sense. God doesn't seem to be there. And so we read texts like the one that we just read from Isaiah, and they really are not compelling to us. They don't make sense because it seems to be saying that God is going to intervene in a dramatic way. And I believe it is true that God is going to intervene in a dramatic way. And yet our minds seem to want to keep telling us that no, that's not how God works. The world just goes on and on as it always has and it always will go on that way. These might be beautiful words from Isaiah, beautiful dream for the future, and maybe God will do it someday. But in my life today, I just act like God's not there. This is a mindset that is a closed mindset. It is closed to the activity of God in the present. It is closed to the activity of God in the future. It is ultimately, beloved, a despairing mindset and a hopeless mindset. And so as I look at these chapters of Isaiah this morning, I exhort you to have an open mindset, not a closed mindset. To believe that God really does work on the earth today and that this judgment and this hope that he proclaims really is coming soon, beloved. And it is true down to every last word. Beloved, we need this open mindset, not just to believe these future events are going to come to pass, but we need this open mindset even to live today. Scripture tells us that Abraham was the father of faith, that he was a man of faith. And I think that Abraham is a beautiful picture of what the open mindset toward God can look like. The mindset that really does believe that God can intervene. When God commanded Abram to go to a land that he would show him, if Abram had been hearing those words with a closed mindset, he never would have obeyed. He would have said, well, If I'm going to go to a land that God's going to show me, that means he's going to have to speak to me again and he's going to have to show me the land. And there may very well be people living in that land and I won't be able to take over that land all by myself, so God's going to have to intervene again to give me that land. And I just don't believe that God is going to show up in all those kinds of ways, so I'm just going to stay put where I am and be content. But of course, that's not what Abraham said. Abraham said, I will go to the land and I will trust that God will intervene again and he will speak and he will show me that land. And even after he speaks and he shows me that land, then he will also help me to overtake that land and to be fruitful in it. You see, Abraham had an open mindset. He believed that God really would move in his life and in his day and would bring about the fulfillment of all of his promises. Another phrase that I like to use for this open mindset is a God-entranced worldview. A God-entranced worldview. 
really believing that behind everything that happens in the earth today, God is there and he is working out his purposes. And we can trust every last word that he says is true and that he can work in our lives today. Beloved, central, central to living the Christian life is having an open mindset. It is having a God-entranced worldview. I just want to give you two different practical examples of how you have to have an open mindset, a God-entranced worldview to live the Christian life. The first just day-to-day example is all of us will experience in our lives moments of being brokenhearted or discouraged or weighed down. What do we do in those moments when we feel discouraged or brokenhearted or weighed down? Well, listen to this promise from Psalm 55, verse 22. It says, Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Beloved, the question, when you read a commandment and a promise like that, the commandment to cast your burden on the Lord and the promise that he will sustain you and he will not permit you to be moved, the question is, do you really believe that or not? Do you really believe that God is going to be active in your life and in the world around you in such a way that when you speak to the Lord, when you cast your burden on him, that he will indeed intervene in your heart and in your life in such a way that he will sustain you? As much as a good friend could sustain you, as much as a loved family member could sustain you, that God is real and he can sustain you in that same way. Do you have an open mindset to that possibility? Or is your mindset a closed mindset? Where you read that verse and you think, oh, that's a nice sentiment. That, that could give me hope if I believed that. You know, it would work psychologically somehow to relieve some sort of my discomfort or something like that. But beloved, Psalm 55.22 is not merely promising to relieve some sort of psychological discomfort. It is promising that the God of the universe will sustain you. He will move in your life today. And you cannot be obedient to him today if you do not believe that God will show up and he will fulfill his promises. Or to give a second example, are you discouraged about your own obedience to God and your own love to God? You wonder if you really have what it takes to walk in obedience to God as Scripture itself commands. Well, listen to these words of Romans 5, verse 5. It says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Beloved, is there a real God who really sits in the heavens, who really pours his love into your hearts through a real Holy Spirit that has been given to you? Is this an activity that God himself is undertaking and is able to undertake any day that you ask him? Or again, is this just psychological talk to give you some sort of hope, to help you feel better about your life day to day? Beloved, my hope and my whole reality is that God is true and he is able to pour his love into my heart in just this way. And if he does not do it, then I go back to him again and again and I say, God, you have written in your word that you will do this. Why is this not happening in my heart right now? 
Why am I not sensing your love filling me up for yourself and for people around me? I need you to work, God. You see, there is a dramatic difference, a night and day difference between somebody that really believes that God will truly fulfill the words that he has spoken and somebody who just believes that they are nice sentiments. They're some kind of psychological help to people who are in need. Beloved, God is real, and he will really move. And so as we dive into these chapters of Isaiah, I don't want you to look at them as just some kind of storybook finish that can give us hope in some kind of vague way, or some kind of scary ending for those who are wicked. Beloved, these are things that are going to happen. They have been planned. They are established in the heavens. And so as we read these things and as we believe them, beloved, they can transform our lives here and now. They can give us enormous hope. They can warn us away from enormous disaster. And if we really believe that this is the future that is coming, then, beloved, I believe that we will live in dramatically different ways here and now. So as we go through these chapters this morning, what I want to do is I just want to follow the words of Isaiah for the most part. There's a couple times when I might bring a future uh, text into a current text, but for the most part, I'm just going to walk through Isaiah 24 to 27. Now, I don't always do this again because we have very long texts and sometimes because Isaiah himself doesn't follow a very orderly structured outline. And so even this morning, I think you'll see as we walk through these verses of Isaiah, Isaiah will say some things and then move forward to another thing and then jump back to another thing he spoke of. So I'm going to try to make it clear as we go through these chapters of Isaiah exactly what Isaiah is talking about at each each juncture. But Isaiah just has so many beautiful words and beautiful descriptions of what God is going to do in the age to come that I just felt like I would be remiss to just camp out on one little section and not look at other sections. So we are going to try to go through all of the verses this morning. And for that reason, I might also be touching on some of these kind of lightly. But again, my prayer is that these words really will come to you as a promise that God has made something that he will actually do and accomplish. And so as we read these things, that you will behold the beauty that is in these words that Isaiah speaks. And so with that, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 24. I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 to 12 and then 17 to 20. And in these verses, what we're going to see first is that Isaiah does proclaim that judgment will come upon the whole earth. That judgment will come upon the whole earth. So, Isaiah 24, beginning in verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. 
The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left." The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, the mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into the ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations. And then jump down to verse 17. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundation of the earth trembles. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls. It will not rise again. Beloved, these are fearful words of judgment that Isaiah proclaims. Most of these words that Isaiah proclaims here focus on the consequences of sin, the terror of sin, the the weight of sin. But it is very clear that all of this judgment is coming because of sin. You can look at verse 5. It says, The earth lies defiled its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. This is why judgment will come upon the earth. Or look at verse 20. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls, and it will not rise again. Beloved, because of the weight of the sins of our world that have for so many generations and for so many centuries have gone unrepented for, judgment will come upon the earth. It will come like a heavy weight on top of a hut, verse 20 says. I'm sure you've all had the experience of putting something heavy on a surface that is really too heavy to hold that thing. And you know what happens when you do that. You can feel that table or that chair, whatever it may be, you can feel it kind of swaying with that heavy weight on top of it, and you're just kind of anxiously waiting to see, is it going to fall over? Is it going to collapse? Beloved, that is what the earth is like today. The weight of sin is piling up on these unsteady foundations, and one day soon, the day is coming when this table of the earth will simply collapse like a hut. It will fall apart because of the weight of sin. And notice what the effect of this judgment will be, what the weight of this sin entails, especially in verses 7 to 11. When it says the wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. 
The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. What the ultimate consequence of sin is, is this kind of sadness in devastation. It is the exact opposite of what people pursue when they sin. Beloved, the the promise of sin, the most central lie of Satan in sin is that do this sin and you will find joy. You will find gladness. You will be happy. You will be able to sing. This will fulfill you. And so the image that Isaiah uses here is this idea of drinking wine and having a feast and tambourines playing and singing going. This is what all the sinners of the world are after. They're after these moments of revelry and lightheartedness and joy. And yet, what is the consequence that they find themselves in? They find that all the wine is gone, that all the songs have ended, that the tambourine is still, that all of this sin that they have committed, hoping that they will find joy, hoping that they will find fulfillment, it has only yielded the opposite. It has only yielded emptiness and brokenness, and destruction. And so, beloved, we must recognize the lie that sin is. That even though it says that you may be happy, you may rejoice, you may have a feast, you may have a party, life may be good here and now, the day is coming very soon when all of those promises will be stripped away and reality will be shown for what it is, that the wages of sin is death. And so, beloved, be assured that this judgment, that this punishment is coming. And yet, we see that in the midst of this judgment, there is also promised a redemption. So read now with me verses 13 to 16. It says, For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, As the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. Now that olive tree is beaten, it's referring to the way in which you harvest olives from a tree. You you hit an olive tree with a long stick and the olives fall down from the tree. Okay, so it's talking about harvesting olives. And then again, gleaning when the grape harvest is done. So it's talking about a harvest, collecting these crops. Verse 14, they lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. Beloved, this is the harvest that God is working even now. Harvest from the east and from the west of a people who will sing and give glory to the name of the Lord, even in the midst of this judgment that Isaiah is saying is going to devastate the whole earth. And then look at the second half of verse 16. I think this is Isaiah's response to this judgment and even to this blessing. He says, but I say, I waste away. I waste away. Woe is me for the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. 
What he's saying is that all of this judgment that he foresees is a heavy burden on him. He wastes away. Woe is me. This evil doing that people have done continues to be done and it is bringing this destruction. And so even though we trust in the goodness of the Lord's judgment, and even though we know that the Lord has a good plan in this salvation through judgment, we can still mourn that the Lord's judgment is coming. We can still respond like Isaiah responds there in verse 16, I waste away. This is a heavy burden. We do not rejoice in the destruction of the wicked. Even though we may acknowledge its rightness and its goodness, we also recognize what a heavy burden it is. And so we see both the hope that's promised in the future of this great harvest coming, and we recognize the great travail, the great burden that occurs in the midst of it. As we go forward into chapter 25, we get a clear depiction of this song that will be sung. We see again in chapter 24, in verse 16, it says, From the ends of the earth we hear a song of praise. So from the redeemed we hear a song of praise. Well, what is this song of praise that we will hear? Look at Isaiah 25, verses 1 to 5. It says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified a city of ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. There's this song of exaltation to the Lord. And notice in these verses three particular reasons that are given for exalting in the Lord in this way. The first reason is given in verse 1. It says, For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. So we, the redeemed beloved, should have this testimony to God that he has done wonderful things, that the plans that he has brought about in history and even the work that he has done in our own lives give us reason to sing him praise. This is the first reason why we have a song of rejoicing to the Lord. The second reason we see in verse 2, it says, For you have made the city of heap, the fortified city, a ruin. And he goes on to talk about how this is the city of evildoers. It is a city that is set up against God. And so we can also rejoice in the Lord that even though we may not have seen the final judgment of the wicked yet, we can rejoice in the Lord that he will indeed bring about an end to all wickedness. He will make the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, that no strong tower raised up against the Lord will ever be able to stand. And so we praise him for that as well. And the third reason we see in these verses is in verse 4. It says, For you have been a stronghold to the poor 
a stronghold to the needy and distressed. That we rejoice in God and we praise God because these are the people whom God has sheltered and God has protected. Not the arrogantly wicked, but those who are poor and in distress. In fact, he has been such a shelter to them that it is they who will tear down these strong cities. It says, you subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. And so we rejoice in God that he has done these wonderful things for us, his people, that he has rescued us from this judgment, these wonderful things he had done and that he brings an end to all wickedness and that he protects those who are poor, those who are in distress. This is the song that the redeemed sing. But now I want to back up just one more step, back to chapter 25 and verse 21. What's going to happen now is Isaiah is zooming in on how exactly this judgment is going to take place and when this song of rejoicing from his people will take place. And so in Isaiah 24, verses 21 to 23, Isaiah says, On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven and heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison and after many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. Notice the two steps that this gives us in the punishment of the wicked, especially in verse 22. It says, They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. So that's the first step. That those who are the spiritual rulers and authorities, they will be gathered together. They will be put in prison. And then that last line of verse 22 gives us step two. It says, and after many days, they will be punished. Beloved, that is the era of history in which we are in right now. After many days, they will be punished. Right now, Satan is bound. The rulers and authority in the heavenly places are shut up in a prison. And after many days, as we learn later in Revelation, they will be let loose once more. And then after that, they will be punished forever. And so Isaiah is simply telling us the same thing that John tells us in the book of Revelation, that God is able to put in prison all the forces of wickedness, all the evildoers, and he is storing up for them wrath for that ultimate day of punishment when they will be thrown into the fire, as we read in Revelation chapter 20. And so Isaiah speaks to us of these two steps to God's judgment upon the wicked. And then in verse 23, again identifying that place where the redeemed will sing to the Lord, it's after the moon and the sun are confounded that the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. So we will be gathered to God on Mount Zion, in that new Jerusalem, that city coming down from God, and we will behold God's glory. 
Now, beloved, this is what is being spoken of further in Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. And so let's look at that now. 25, verses 6 to 9. It says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken." It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Again, two things I want to highlight about these verses here. First of all, notice the blessing, the reward that comes to those who are redeemed. It is the very opposite of the judgment that comes upon sinners, that sinners who have been seeking joy, who have been seeking wine, who have been seeking frivolity and parties and celebration, they are deprived of all those things. And yet those who hold fast to the Lord, what is it that they receive? They receive a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Beloved, our, our future glory, our future reward, if we will hold fast to the Lord in obedience to Him, is not merely a disembodied existence, where we are somehow spiritually united to the Lord, but we don't get to enjoy any created thing any longer? No, Isaiah uses this language of the best of all the creation has to offer will in that last day be ours when we come into God's eternal dwelling place, a feast of rich food, well-aged wine. This is the reward that God is preparing for his people, even though we may suffer a great deal now. Even though we may be deprived of all these things here and now, we know that that reward is what is coming to us. And then the second thing that I want us to see is the essence of what this salvation truly is. And this we see in verse 9. It says, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So, yes, beloved, the Lord does have a feast prepared for us, a feast of wine and rich food. And yet the most glorious thing on that day is that we will behold the glory of the Lord. We will see him and we will be able to say that we have waited for him. It's not that we've waited for all these other blessings that he's provided, even though, again, we are thankful for them and we will be glad for them. But most of all, we will say, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. And Revelation 21 gives us the image of a wedding 
And that great wedding feast that is happening. And so as we think that we have waited for him, we can think of this image of how a groom waits to see his bride on that wedding day. There may be a long engagement and that groom is waiting for that day when he will see his beautiful bride walking down the aisle. And when he sees her, he says, she is the one I have waited for. I am so glad she is here. And if it were not for her, no wedding would even happen. It would not be worth celebrating. And so that day, we will see the Lord as he is the groom and we are prepared as the bride for him. We will say, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. And so, beloved, we live here and now waiting and longing for that day when he will be revealed and we will see him as he is. Now, after those verses, Isaiah takes a step back again to speak of the judgment. And he speaks of judgment on a particular nation in his day. And so this is Isaiah 25, verses 10 to 12. It says, For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down on a dunghill. And he will spread out his hand in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hand out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortifications of his walls. He will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust. Earlier in the same section of Isaiah, in Isaiah 16, 6, Moab was proclaimed to be an arrogant people. And here, the image of a swimmer in verse 11, I think, is illustrating the precise reality that Isaiah is speaking of in terms of the nations. They're like this swimmer trying to tread water, getting all this joy and this celebration. And yet, they can only swim for so long until their strength gives out. And then they will be destroyed as Moab will be destroyed. And the people of God will get that very thing that they have been waiting for. And then going on into verse 26, Isaiah returns to this idea of the redeemed singing and rejoicing before God. And so Isaiah 26, starting in verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. So again, he repeated the idea of we're singing a song. This is what we do. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock for he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust, the foot tramples it, the feet of the needy, the, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. Beloved, it is such a beautiful and glorious statement that we have there, I think especially in verse 1, that we have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Beloved, the salvation that we receive in Christ Jesus is not a fragile salvation, a salvation that we gain some days and lose other days, a salvation that may someday be overcome by some other evil force working against it. Beloved, our salvation is a strong city, or as we read in Proverbs before the message, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. 
There is no fear that we have after we have come to Christ. He is able to preserve us until the end. And that is why, as verse 3 says, we have perfect peace as we stay our mind on the Lord because we know that nothing can overcome him. Nothing is stronger than him. We have a strong salvation, a strong city in the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. And then going on in verses 7 to 15, we have what is a prophetic reflection on all of these things. It says, The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. Beloved, see here that even though Isaiah began with this great anguish, over the judgment that was coming upon the earth, now that he has had some time to think about it and to also see the beauty of what God is bringing to the redeemed, he can also see the rightness of God's judgment. So look there at the second half of verse 9. When your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals Corruptly, And so Isaiah is seeing the goodness of God's judgment, even as he acknowledges that it is a heavy weight, even as he acknowledges that it is not something that we necessarily wish for or, or hope for. He sees that there is good that's coming out of it. And again, as he sees that future hope that is awaiting the redeemed, he has this beautiful phrase that my soul yearns for you in the night My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. Beloved, if that is your heart, to earnestly seek after God, to yearn for God even in the night, then you will surely be rewarded. Because again, that is exactly what is coming when Christ returns and there is the judgment and there is the reward. You will see the face of God. And so, beloved, why not set your heart there now, today, so that when that future day comes, you will have no regret. You will not look back thinking that you did anything wrong or you could have done anything differently because you spent your time now and here longing for the one who you would indeed be with forever and ever. And so Isaiah proclaims that these judgments are good. And that we can long for the Lord because of the beautiful things that have been revealed. I'm going to jump down now to verse 16 of chapter 26. It says, O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light. 
and the earth will give birth to the dead. And so Isaiah reflects that even though we have many pains right now, even though our lives right now may be like a pregnant woman in labor and we have all of these pains, there is this promise coming that even if we die in those pains, we shall yet rise to newness of life. And therefore, this promised hope that is coming is an eternal hope. It is not subject to death or end of any sort, but rather, it will be ours forever and ever. And then we come to the closing of this oracle, of this vision of Isaiah in chapter 27. And here I'm just going to highlight a couple more passages. 27 verse 1, In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So Isaiah here is speaking of that serpent that we learned of back in Genesis 3, Satan himself. God will put an end to him. Again, he will be put in a prison. And then in future days, he will be punished. And then verses 2 to 5, In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. This beautiful picture of a vineyard. If you remember Isaiah 5, Isaiah spoke of Israel as a vineyard that was broken down, that even though God had cared for it, it was not bearing any fruit. But here, God speaks of a vineyard where he himself is its keeper and he is watering it every moment. And he even wishes that there were thorns and briars coming in so that he could go forth and battle them and show those in his vineyard how much he loves them through battling these briars and thorns. But there will be none. Because the judgment will have been done. And therefore the vineyard will be perfectly protected, perfectly safe forever and ever. And so we see that echoed once again in verses 12 and 13. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain. And you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown. And those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Beloved, this is the promise that has been fulfilled in our own day. Even though we live in lands very far removed from Israel, very far removed from the original people of God, God has gone out and one by one he has gleaned us into his kingdom. And because we have been placed into his kingdom, this is the promise that he makes to us that we will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. That place, beloved, where there will be that great feast of wine and rich food. Beloved, this is the day that is coming, that is promised to us if we will hold fast to Christ. 
And so, again, in closing, beloved, I exhort you, do not have a closed mindset that just thinks of all these words as a beautiful sentiment, as something that can somehow comfort us in subtle ways because maybe something like this future is going to happen. No, beloved, these are promised words of God and the day is coming very soon when his judgment will come upon everyone who turns away from him. And this glorious blessing of a feast in the presence of God will come to everyone who is now presently seeking after him and continues to do so. And so, beloved, trust in the Lord. No matter what sort of thing may be in your life that seems to be some obstacle to you following after him, you must continue to follow after him if you do not want to fall into this judgment that is coming. And if you do, trust in him. As we know, promised in the blood of Jesus Christ, we will be washed clean. And because we are washed clean, we can sing. We can sing these songs of Isaiah of what the Lord has done, the glorious plan that he has, that he is bringing to fruition, and we can rest in him both now and forever. Will you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious future that you have destined for those who love you, for those who call upon your name. God, I pray that every person in this room will reach that final shore. I pray that no one will be lost, that no one, because of the pains of this life, will abandon you or turn aside from you. But Lord, would you strengthen all of us that we might see that glorious hope that is coming. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you send forth your spirit with your word. And we trust in you to do your work in us by your word now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.